0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. Actually, I think I should say good afternoon um, because we are, I'm broadcasting instead of my usual West Coast location, I'm broadcasting from uh, the East Coast, from Roanoke, Virginia, where I'm attending a conference. And so if the sound quality isn't what we're used to, and uh, if the technology burps a little bit here and there, please forgive me. Um, but thank you for joining us. As always, if you want to uh, join our conversation, you can go to our chat room, or you can go to to the telephone and just call, give us a call. And that number is 646-378-0430. I'm Heather Stark, your host, and with me, I have two amazing women, Elizabeth Zvavala. Oh, help me out here, Liz. Liz. Is it Zwabala? Zwabala? Elizabeth, are you there? Okay, Liz, are you there? Okay, Liz, are you there? Hi, I'm Oh, okay, great. I was just making apologies for any burps in the technology, and there we are. Okay, Liz, help me pronounce your last name. Slavola?
2: Yes, Slavola.
1: Swabola. Okay, thank you very much. Elizabeth Swavola is, uh, uh, I ran across her because of a, a report that she helped author. She is the uh, senior program associate, sentencing and corrections with um, a private prison uh, group, right? Um, no, it's
2: a nonprofit called the Vera Institute. Nonprofit,
1: okay. Okay, and she has a history of uh, advocating for improved responses to violence against women, and she also co-founded an organization to help women returning home from prison.
0: I also have with
1: me Taylor Neuvel, As Am I saying that correctly, Taylor?
0: It's Neuvel, but I like the little spin
1: you put on it. <laughs> okay. She's a writer and an advocate for justice-involved women who founded Who Speaks for Me? That's a, it's a project that ties trauma to prison uh, for women. And she was uh, incarcerated herself for five years, and she is now turned into a, an amazing journalist. And her writings have been published in the Washington Post and The Nation, among other um, outstanding publications. So thank you for joining us, Liz and Taylor. I appreciate your being here and taking some of your afternoon for us.
0: Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks
1: for having us. Great. Well, when we think of women in prison now, we usually think of the ladies in in uh, orange. Orange is the new black,
2: and of course, they're very entertaining ladies.
1: They're very entertaining and very high, you know, personalities. Um, but. Other than Orange is the New Black, we tend to think of women uh, in prison as the prostitutes and the the junkies and, you know, uh, kind of the dregs of society, and then we stop thinking about women in prison. Am I right? Liz? Yeah, I think
2: um, the media has definitely contributed to a certain vision of who the women who are incarcerated are, and that's not necessarily – the case, um, when we did our research um, at the Vera Institute um, so the report overlooked women in jails in an era of reform, we found that um, the vast majority of women in jail are there for nonviolent offenses, so things like property offenses, so you know, theft or shoplifting um, low-level drug offenses, and public order offenses, so loitering or disorderly conduct. Um, these, these are women who really do not pose a risk to, to the community.
1: No. Um, and so what's the reality? Taylor, what is really the reality about women in prison?
0: Well, I think when we – so the Bayer Institute, as um, Liz will tell you, focused on jails because um, – that's generally, like, with the highest population of women who are incarcerated. So, um, so this is the reality. First of all, orange is a new black is not my um, litmus test for what it's like for women in jails and prisons around the country. Um, I will say black has always been black when it comes to incarceration. And mm. recently the um, Equal Rights Center issued a report based in D.C. on housing and women with criminal backgrounds. And it was a very tangible report that got very little media attention, which shocked me because this is in D.C.'s own backyard. And what, what they discovered is that, um, okay, so we know that, like, over the last decade, the population of men in the jails and prisons around the country has declined. But for women, it has increased. And two, for every two, two, black women and, and Latinas are two times as likely to go to prison as their white counterparts. But the one thing that all of these women have in common is that the majority of them are trauma survivors. So that's why my project traces the trauma to prison pipeline, which is what I call it. And and, and the reality is, is that you're dealing with a population of women who have prison, have trauma prior to prison, who are re-traumatized once they are in prison, and then you're dealing you with post incarceration trauma and the women that are there um, so also in the jails it's like we've um, said you're dealing with low-level offenses because a lot of places have bonds that require people to have money to get out pre-trial but in D.C. that's not the case because we have the Bail Reform Act but again you're still dealing with population that like have charges for prostitution, property violations, women who have actually been victims of so much domestic violence that they may have committed a violent act to protect themselves or their children um, who have gotten involved in the system because they've been victims of violence and they are prostituting themselves or been become substance use disorder to deal with their trauma. Um, and it's a very bleak situation because the model is based on men. And so you're dealing with a traumatized population who goes into a system that's built for men, that's run by men, and nobody's really looking at the trauma that came before the re-traumatization and during harm reduction. So you return people to society, and there becomes this vicious cycle. So I think that's, that's my takeaway from it.
1: Okay.
2: Um, so what sends women
1: to prison, Liz?
2: Um, so, again, I report or specifically, jail, specifically or jail. on yeah. jail, yeah, which is totally yeah. fine. Um, so the difference is that a jail is a locally run facility, usually county or city um, runs that facility, and it holds mostly people who are pre-trial. So they're awaiting either trial or resolution of their cases. And like we said, what brings them to jail is, is really efforts to survive at the end of the day. Um, many of these women are living in poverty. Um, 60% lacked full-time employment before um, they were arrested. And um, nearly 80% of them are mothers. And in many cases, they are single mothers. Um, so when they get picked up, it's for things like shoplifting. And oftentimes, you know, you'll hear stories about how it was shoplifting diapers or formula or baby clothes, um, things that that their children need. Um, in other cases, it's drug offenses. So about um, a third of the women um, are picked up on you know things like possession, simple possession. Then public order, um, so loitering or, or disorderly conduct. And, and, and a lot of that behavior can also result from um, mental illness. We know that nearly a third of women in jail um, suffer from serious mental illness, and that's double the rate um, among men in jail. So um, you know, they're coming into contact with the system because they really aren't able to access the, the resources or the help that they need in the community.
1: Okay, but when we started our conversation, we were saying that, you know, the public perception is that it's the prostitutes who get in jail and the drug addicts who get in jail. They do get in jail, don't they? What, what's the percentage of the uh, prostitution and drug addicts, that, uh, women, who, who land in jail? Is it a large percentage or is it a small percentage? Is it mostly the shoplifting? What's the bulk of the offense for women who land in jail?
2: Sure. So it's 32% for property offenses, 29% for drug offenses, and 21% um, for public order. So together, those are about 82% of uh, the women in jail. Um, very few women are actually picked up on, on prosecution charges. I think it's something like 1% of all arrests. Um, but law enforcement do find other ways um, to arrest women who they believe might be engaging in prostitution. So I think that public order um, category can cover some of that. So if they're, they're loitering and law enforcement believes that to engage um, in prostitution, then they may um, make an arrest. Okay,
1: um, so
2: we,
1: the bulk of women who are sent to jail are sent for either prostitution or thievery or uh, drug offenses. A lot of those women, I would imagine, just like any, um, anybody, male or female, a lot of them are dealing with some mental health issues. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's, absolutely, yeah. that's
2: absolutely
1: correct. Yeah,
2: that's 32%. Absolutely correct of women in jail have a serious mental illness. Eighty-two percent have experienced drug or alcohol abuse or dependence. And like Taylor said, so many of these women have experienced trauma over the course of their lifetime. So almost 90 percent of women in jail report having experienced sexual violence. Um, And 77 percent report having experienced partner violence and another 60 percent caregiver violence. So these women are coming yeah. into the system with serious histories of trauma. And like Taylor touched on before, um, the jail experience only works to really deepen and that trauma and to re-traumatize the women who are held there. Yeah. So, so we think got that's one people... of the
0: things in Orange and the New Black is that they don't stress the, really the lack of training amongst staff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I think that that is really key um, in training training correctional officers and staff on trauma um and women i really do think that's it. that's one of the key
1: mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, I want to just finish this this whole uh, conversation before we move to the actual conditions within jail. Um, So we've got women who have a variety of of, uh, offenses. They're not necessarily, you know, the bulk of them anyway, are not people who, you know, you done murder and, you know, things like that. The bulk of them uh, have uh, offenses uh, that uh, have to do probably with uh, day-to-day living. You know, how do I live? How do I get my money? How do I get the diapers that I need? How do You know, that kind of thing. Um, But then we have a large percentage of them who are dealing with mental health issues. The commonality here, though, is that they, for the most part, almost overwhelmingly, have experienced trauma, major trauma in their lives, everything from sexual assault to what we call domestic violence or partner abuse. I want to talk more about that domestic violence later on, but let's talk about the sexual violence that these women have experienced. Do they then, I, I guess, I don't even know exactly how to form this question, but we, we often hear about the girl who is kind of snookered into prostitution and then, you know, her, her life includes, you know, working on the streets and being arrested for prostitution, you know, that kind of thing. Are women being manipulated into offenses that end up sending them to jail?
0: I I, I don't know what Liz's um, research discovered just from my own personal lived experience, and I did a lot of legal advocacy and reading through people's um, cases while I was in the jail and the prison
2: over the five years,
0: reading through their pre sentencing reports and learning a lot about them. And as as um, Liz was saying, that um, prostitution doesn't make up a lot of it. So when you're talking about sexual violence, you're really talking about a mindset. And I went back to jail on Wednesday to give a talk for Domestic Violence Awareness Month to the women here in DC. And I saw a lot of the women that I did that I went when I went to prison, to the jail in 2010. I saw a lot of those women, and and I can say that the majority of them are not. Prostitutes like so people end up on supervised release and they might have a charge and they're on what we call supervised release because there's no more probation um, and they might do something that's a misdemeanor so it could be they get caught with some crack or they get caught in an area as Liz said that is they are perceived to be prostituting um, but because you add that mental health component you can also do something here in D.C. called FD12 which is committing people and then if they resist you get risk resisting arrest but the fact that they've re um they've gotten re involved with law enforcement, they're gonna go back to the jail while they await their new sentencing. But I don't think that the issue is that sexual violence is leading people to being prostitutes. I think that sexual violence is leading people to sexual violence and physical violence lead women to having very low self esteem. That our culture doesn't really acknowledge it specifically in communities of color, um, there's a big problem with that. And I think from my own personal experience and just listening to the women at the jail on Wednesday, that idea that they can talk about it and begin to understand their history of abuse, connecting it with their substance use disorder or their choice and partners. And in D.C. we have a large so I know, Liz, that you know this through your thing. It changes from, from, from county to county, state to day, mm-hmm. state, locally, jails. So in D.C. we have a large substance use disorder. And my belief is where you see substance use disorder, you usually see mental illness and, 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 and self-medication, and behind that you're going to see some trauma. So I think that sexual violence plays out in just very self-destructive ways that aren't leading women to necessarily commit crimes of what we call prostitution. They're not necessarily sex workers. They just don't value themselves. I I think that's what it is.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: I agree. That makes makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think this is one
1: of those
2: areas where um, we really need a lot more research. Um, we found generally in, in writing the report overlooked um, that there is just a total lack of research on women in jails. Um, what does exist is very, very old. Um, it, it touches on one tiny part of, of the overall issue and really doesn't paint a picture of who these women actually are. Um, So I think that we really, at all levels of government, local all the way up to federal, need um, a greater effort to to understand why women are coming to jail and and how we can um, prevent that from happening going forward.
1: Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what you found in your report Liz. Um, Women are a a, a very rapidly growing population of of, uh, a demographic for jails. Is that true? Can you tell us more about that?
2: Absolutely true. So like we said, um, jails are locally run facilities that hold um, predominantly people who are pre-trial, but also a smaller percent who have been um, sentenced to under one year, whereas most people going to prison are sentenced to more than one year. Um, so just in those jails, since 1970, the number of women has increased 14-fold. So it was 8,000, just about 8,000 people, women in 1970, and now it's nearly 110,000. And as Taylor said earlier, the population of men has started to decline slightly, um, but the same cannot be said about women. They are the fastest growing um, population in jail. Wow. Why? Yes. It's a great question. Um, That's something, you know, (laughs) that we really wanted to understand better and and the whole reason for writing this report, um, our researchers at Vera uncovered these numbers and we wanted to understand that exact question, why. And I think even after months of research, uh, we still don't have a good answer. We know that um, women have increasingly become caught up in the system because of the focus on low-level crimes. So with things like, broken-windows policing or the war on drugs, Um, women have come more to the attention of law enforcement. We also know that as women move through the system, um, there isn't a lot of focus on them because they are a smaller percentage of, of the population moving through the criminal justice system. So um, programming in, both in jail and um, in things like probation or community supervision, like Taylor said, are really designed for men. So they don't meet the needs of women. Um, and another big piece of it is the financial piece. Uh, local systems are increasingly um, reliant on the people that they're processing through the system to, to keep their operations running. So there are fines and fees at every single point in the process um, like Taylor said, there's cash bail, which keeps many women in jail because they are coming to the system more financially disadvantaged, even than the men that are coming to the system. Um, so it's really a cycle that, that traps many women and keeps them in the system, and that impacts the families as well. So, so I
0: okay. that I think that one of the reasons it's growing is because there's been this sort of mass movement to really unpack Mass incarceration in our country, mm-hmm. and as they focus more on men, I, I guess it touches on what you're saying, Liz. We focus more on men, and therefore it's like, okay, well, if we're focusing on men and the number are declining, and 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 I don't want to sound like a conspiracy, but I could be. Um, so a lot of <laughs> women that I've met on this journey, <laughs> I don't deny it. A lot of women that I've met on this journey, especially ones that have drug offenses. And they are pre-trial. And like I say, in D.C. we have the Bail Reform Act. So we don't have bond people in D.C. because that just doesn't exist. Because the idea is that if you're pre-trial and you meet most conditions, you've got, you're going to be um, able to bond out based upon restrictions that are put upon you. And this is actually working here in D.C. When, when I was stepped back after my trial in 2010, there were over 350 women who were waiting in the jail pre-trial or pre-sentence. And, yes, when I went back on Wednesday, there were only 130 women, which really shocked me. Um, but what what I think has happened, and a lot of the women that I have met, they are connected with a male's crime. So mm-hmm. in order to get women to turn state's evidence so that they can lock up the male that is either father or one woman, it was her own father, um, they they tend to are now starting to focus on the women. Like we can get at these men. Um, I think that's a that's a large part of it. And I think Liz is talking also. I mean, I don't know if you came out and said it, but there is a financial financial piece to this. Mm-hmm. That if we can't really get the men, then we're going to focus on the women who are in their lives, which which is just staggeringly sad because. 80% of women who go to prison are the primary caregivers of their children. So I think that the, I, I, in my piece that I wrote for Vera in connection with their report on gender bias, I think one of the things that's really important is if that let's just name it, it's sexism. If you want to understand mm-hmm. the sexism in our culture, go to a woman's jail or a prison. And that is really what it boils down to at the end of the day. Women are not going to have the same kind of advocacy, or resources. So it's not shocking that they are growing because the focal point has switched and they're not going to have the same. If, if men had these low level crimes, they wouldn't be in jail. Does that make sense? Hmm.
1: Yes, it does. Um, And you mentioned, you know, that women are kind of being used as a tool. They're being jailed as a tool. Um, And certainly this might be a good time to segue into that whole concept of domestic violence, um, partner violence, because it's not unheard of. And as a matter of fact, in in some places and in some points in time, it has been very common for prosecutors to um, use a woman, Um, to get her to testify against or to be on board against an abuser, her male abuser,
2: overlooking
1: whatever reasons there may be for her to not do that. Um, But certainly it has been common in, in many areas for a prosecutor to jail the woman, the victim, in order to prosecute the perpetrator, the man. Am I right on that?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, a a great example to kind of drive all of this home is the example of conspiracy laws. So women tend to be more um, peripherally involved in in drug-related crimes, just as an example. Um, So they can get swept into the system for doing something as simple as taking a phone message for their partner or holding his suitcase at their apartment. Um, And then, once they get into the court process, they have less leverage to negotiate with the prosecutor um, for a better plea deal, because they don't have as much information. They can't trade with the prosecutor about who else is involved in, in the drug operation. And so they can face the same charges that their partner faces for doing something much less serious.
1: Um,
2: and it's it's really a, din- a dynamic that is, is really unjust and unfair to those women. And, you know, I was reading You yeah. oh, know, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Cool.
0: So I will just tell you first-hand experience. And I probably, if in my house, I hope the police don't rate it, I've got <laughs> 20 boxes of cases that I worked on. Um, uh-huh. And I can just tell you that I met women who um, would often come to me and say, I've been offered this deal. And, and, this, and so I started researching conspiracy. Because before I went to prison, I didn't know about this whole conspiracy charge. And people, women... Sometimes often end up doing more time than their conspirators, the people that are actually committing the crimes, because conspiracy is a black hole. Everyone talks about mandatory minimums, but nobody is talking about being charged with conspiracy to commit a crime. And all you need is for somebody to say that you knew. You don't need anything more tangible or concrete than that. And I had a woman. Come to me, who was given 14 years because they mm-hmm. staged our government goes through great lengths. They knew this man was doing drugs. He had three kids. She had five kids. They were all at her house. The, they dressed up as firemen. They said there was a gas leak, and the, 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 the man knew something was going down. He put the drugs in her purse. On the way out, she grabs her purse, and the police officers took her without any provocation she wasn't fleeing she wasn't a danger and in her purse were drugs so she got tied to his very large case very large case and she said i'm not taking a plea she was a mother of five and she got 14 years because she wouldn't oh take God. a plea 14 oh. years and so conspiracy is a how, much did he get? how much did he get he got like 20, and oh. yet he was like a, a drug kingpin. And the thing is, is that conspiracy is a charge that women that I met in prison will say over and over, you'll never be the conspiracy charge, so you always take the plea. But they're forgetting that if these women take a plea, they're not just putting their own lives in danger, they're putting the lives of their children and their other family members in danger. And so again, it's back to the whole domestic violence issue. It's like you're involved with this person. You may or may not know that they're dealing drugs, but you really don't have any information to give the prosecution. So you're either gonna get on the stand and lie against them or you're gonna take your chances. And so I I really wanted to talk more and look more into like what's happening with conspiracy when we're dealing with women that are getting mm-hmm. this time who are going to jail As well as, like, look at, like, saying just because you have money doesn't mean you have more of a right to be out of jail while you're fighting your case. Because if you're locked up, you're going to make a deal under duress. If you're free, you have more access to information and community support to make a, a more informed decision. And I think that's one of the tools Of having bonds set is that you get what you want, and even if women take these pleas, they end up like one woman, fifty-six years. I mean, like, is that really fair? Wow, wow. So, I mean, Um, that's my lived experience. So, that's all I can (laughs) say. Okay,
1: Um, and Taylor, maybe at this point, why why were you? um, You did five years.
0: I was actually sentenced to five and a half years, and I and and I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. So I. Oh, if you don't want to talk away. about it, that's fine. No, okay. But I'm okay. Um, I'm moving to that space. So I was um I was involved with a woman who's a judge in D.C. Mm-hmm. and um we broke up. And we were moving to breaking up. <laughs> I, I knew this was happening. Um, a lot of things happened, and the day we broke up, we were living together. I tried to kill myself in our attic and after i got out of the hospital because i almost died i mean a lot of the reports if you google me will say it happened days after it happened the exact same day we broke up i was at the house getting my property packing it up in the attic and i overdosed on her psych meds and i was found the next day almost dead nothing happened when i got myself together i finally went through it filing the judicial misconduct complaint against her and that happened in september october When she realized they were going to investigate her, I was charged with break. First, I was charged with um, stalking. Then I was charged with. Later, they changed the charges to breaking and entering. And and in DC, you can't have a B and E without an underlying offense. My underlying offense was stalking by trying to commit suicide, which is a made-up charge. Because if the person commits suicide, they haven't committed a crime. And you can't stop by trying to kill yourself.
1: And when you break
0: in, you have to have an intent. And I lived there. Um, I ended up. They offered me lots of plea deals. They wanted me to rescind my judicial misconduct complaint against her, and I won't go into that because that's something that I'll write about later. But I was tried in the courthouse where she was a sitting judge. I was tried by somebody that was a friend of hers. That's where I was tried. And no one asked the question. And I was offered a plea of misdemeanor stalking if I rescinded my judicial misconduct complaint, and I refused. I refused because I stand on truth. And I knew before the trial that I was going to prison because during the evidentiary hearings they excluded a lot of evidence. The judge, I was had a court-appointed attorney. He made it clear to me that he wasn't going to, present evidence. And so I went to prison for breaking and entering with an underlying offense of stalking and unlawful entry. And everything took place on the same day. So if everything takes place on the same day, you run the sentencing concurrently, not consecutively. My judge ran everything consecutively and told me it was a three-hour sentencing, and he told me I make people abuse me because the local probation department, Really advocated for me and said, This is a woman with trauma. And whatever she did, there was abuse involved. And he said in the court, My colleagues got it wrong. I know the real Taylor Nouvelle. And I just went. I went away and um, I learned a lot. And I don't think that I would ever do it again that way. But here I am. I'm on the other side and I get to speak. I get to speak for those women.
1: Okay. Thank you for, for letting us know that. Um, I appreciate that.
0: And and you should also know uh, that the local probation department has put in for me to come off my supervised release. They put in in January for me to come off early, but because she is still a judge and carries a lot of power, I've done all of this work, and um, we have to go through the federal system even though we're local. And she has a lot of power, and even though, like, the director of CISO said, works with me on projects. They won't let me off papers. I will not come off until 2018 because of who she is. So you can see that this, when I say that I'm not a conspiracy, but maybe I am, I, I see what happens. I have been a person that has been deeply affected by this. And yet I had advocates in unlikely areas. The local police department did their research. They looked into my past. They saw that I got into foster care. They they interviewed my mother and people who had abused me. And so I there there is a power dynamic involved and women aren't supposed to be empowered and I'm not one to be silent, so um that's that's why I did the time I did, but I have a very good relationship with my probation officer and the people in the local probation department and that's very unusual, I know. Well.
1: No. Um okay. So um you came to this because of a relationship issue that, that led yes, to then so all that, this other that stuff. That was
0: like that was like one of many abusive relationships.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. All right. Yeah. Um well okay. Yeah. I just kinda wanted and I didn't mean to, you know, have you have to go into everything, but I just wanted to give a, a no, little I'm basis, making you know. A whole
0: I'm making a whole this is a process. I've been home for two years. And I'm now just getting to the point where I'm willing to talk about it. And and, and if we don't sh- – and that's the other thing, Liz, that I, I wanted to – um when we think about the increasing number of women in prison and what's happening with reentry, women are shamed in a way that men are not, whereas men mm-hmm. speak out and there's all this support. Women, especially women with trauma, so if you're dealing with a population that's 90% traumatized that go to jail or prison, they're not going to be vocal because women are supposed to be demure. They're supposed to be the mothers. You know, yeah. they're – supposed to be pure and so if they go to prison or jail there is this stigma and they don't speak out. And um I think the more women are willing to shed that cloak of shame that's America's shame that's been put upon them, the more we're going to be able to like stop this trajectory. And until that yeah. happens it's not going to slow down.
1: Okay. All right, let's talk a little bit about, okay, so we've got this burgeoning population. We talked a little bit about why that might be. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz, but I don't think that we've seen a lot of studies as to why women's, uh, the women population is increasing in jails, have we?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I also want to thank Taylor for sharing her story. She's incredibly Brave, and I think she really drives home the point that um, incarceration is not the place for people who have experienced trauma um, like yeah. she has. And I think um, the, the experience itself is incredibly traumatizing. Um, there, you know, even just daily correctional procedures like using restraints or um, conducting body searches, um, mm. in solitary confinement. All of that can be deeply traumatizing. Not, not to mention that women are, are also more likely to experience sexual victimization while in jail, um, both at the hands of other incarcerated people, but particularly um, by staff. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's Taylor's story is, you know, a good example of um, of incarceration not being the answer. Um, offering okay treatment and. <clears throat>
1: What we're dealing with is we're, to, we're talking about women who have been traumatized, and that has usually led in one way or another to their incarceration. Then when they are incarcerated, the likelihood that they will be re-traumatized by untrained staff or uncaring staff or inappropriate staff is great. So what's the fallout from that? We have a popu- an increasing population of women who have experienced jail and that re-traumatization. In your report, you talk about some of the fallout from that, uh, weakened family ties. And, you know, what, what are we looking at because of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, it's, so nearly 80% of women in jail are mothers, oftentimes single mothers. So, um, so not only does jail impact them, but their families as well. It has a far-reaching impact um, on families and communities. And so, even jails are are most often, you know, in the city center or you know in within the town. But even then, you know, getting to visit your your mother when she's in jail isn't very difficult. Um, There can be um, in some cases rules about when you can visit and and oftentimes kids are at school during that time or caregivers are working. Um, When you are able to go into the facility, it's loud, it's scary. There are a lot of rules. Oftentimes you're only seeing your loved one through um, a a glass panel, so you can't hug or or embrace at all. Um, In some cases you can only visit through video, so you have to go to the facility itself, but then only see your loved one through a video. Um, even making a phone call can have very steep um, fees. And so because so many of these women are from, um, you know, impoverished or low-income communities, this is a real burden um, for their families. And, um, and when they're in the facility, they often don't get um, the healthcare that they need because these are county-run facilities. They have fewer resources than prisons, for example. And um, oftentimes the health care providers are not specifically trained in, in giving care to women. So things are misdiagnosed um, or go undetected. Um, there's not adequate mental health care. And so women are leaving jails um, more destabilized and, and their chances for recovery, um, especially from trauma, are severely diminished.
1: What's, do you know, have a recidivism rate for women in jails, or do they only do that for prisons? So, for
2: unfortunately, both? well, so, yeah, so there's, there's, there are, um, and everyone defines recidivism differently. We still don't have a exactly. Exactly <laughs> good unifying definition of what recidivism is, um, but for jails, there really isn't um, a good um, statistic, and you know, I, I didn't really answer your last question about um, just the lack of research. You know, we found this on every single point. It is incredibly hard to find up-to-date, current, and accurate um, statistics for women. So we really don't have a reliable um, recidivism rate for women in jails.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, I think so we, that, we can't.
2: Um,
0: I, think, I think, so So I want to just say that, like, okay, D.C. is very unusual because, one, we don't have our own, we're not a state and they got rid of the prison years ago that was housed in Virginia. So D.C. convicted felons have to go into the federal system. But if you go to the CISOSA site, they have really good statistics on recidivism. But, again, it's like was said, it's very difficult to define recidivism because sometimes people are reincarcerated accidentally for no reason, for not doing anything. Um, I I, I think that it's really important to think about – the fact about the mental health treatment and about the um, medical treatment. And so I just want to say this. Having been in county jail in the federal system, and in D.C., we have something called Unity that works in the jail that's a nonprofit um, that's in the community and in the jail. And we are very fortunate here. I got worse care in the federal system for my physical and emotional (laughs) medical needs than I got in the local jail. But Mm -hmm. county time, jail time, is the hardest time that you do. And you're right, Liz, that, like, when you get to prison or when you get to jail, they have formularies for the kind of medication. So a lot of women come in with mental illness, and they're on medication. And the prison and the jail say, we don't pay for that medication. We don't allow that medication. And so the women are going through withdrawal from their medication. They're having issues. And, again, it's just. A situation that's ripe for abuse and what happens when you come home you are completely torn down you are overwhelmed and where do you go and so yeah. i've been very fortunate but a lot mm-hmm. of bad things have happened to me since i've been home but not now. Okay, and yeah, that leads me, uh, to totally that that. that
1: leads that leads me to my next question, Taylor, which is, after you leave, um, what kind of support systems are there? Well, basically, you're saying there aren't any. But what about well, financially okay, so, after you leave prison? So, what so, happens financially so to most is this, women?
0: So, so yeah, this is the thing. D.C. is an anomaly, okay? It really is. So we do have resources here, but um. So my case was high profile. So people were waiting for me because my case stemmed from mental illness and I'm under the behavioral health center, the behavioral health division for, well, when you come out, you're in the halfway house. And because we're coming out of bureau prison custody, even though we're locals, until we're actually released, um, we're under the bureau of prisons. And so I was um, attached to that mental health division. So I had uh-huh. people, people were waiting for me, which I didn't know, which was really bizarre. Um but I'm under the Behavioral Health Division, which we used to call mental health, of the local probation department called SOSA here. But here's the deal. Women come home, and men, and you have all these appointments you have to attend. You have to go to probation. You have mm-hmm. to go. I don't have to do um, drug testing, but a lot of people do. You have to go look for jobs. You have to go um, show up at drug treatment. And no one's giving you money for even travel, right? So, so what happens if you can't make an appointment? When you have to go meet with your local probation officer, nobody's giving you travel mm-hmm. funds. Um, so in D.C., we don't have the, the, the financial connection with, with, with travel, but we do have a lot of things to connect you with mental health services and housing and things like that. I'm not saying it's working, but it's there, but there's a lack of access to information. Overall, when mm-hmm. I work with women, and I work with women all over the country, they come home to very little. And and even if, and I wanted to say this, was when you were talking about, you know, like the majority of the women come from low, working class, working poor. Even the women that come from, like, more stable financial situations, people abandon you when you're incarcerated.
1: People People tired. abandon you when you go, th- When you- <laughs> people have a tendency to abandon you when you go through anything that's really uh, difficult, <laughs> you know, whether it's a come, divorce so or a so prison, you know.
0: So, so, so getting visits, even if you're in the local jail, and that's something that, Liz, I really appreciate you talking about. Like, people think that, oh, if you're local, you can get visits with your children. No. One, you don't have the ability to keep up your hygiene, and I wrote about this in an op-ed piece. You don't want your kids seeing you like this, and at this, the, the, this central treatment facility here in D.C. where the women are housed, the visits are contact. But who wants to see their kids when their hair is not kept, they smell bad? It's very painful. But there's a, the Beer Institute did an article with Gabriella Belosva and Lashana um, Thompson Bay, and it's called Fighting for FaceTime. And it's all about the difficulty of visits. It's about those plexiglass visits, it's about those, um,
2: those, 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 those
0: video conferencing things. And it's about the contact visits and how hard it is because it's during business hours that the visitations take place. You you have to check in. The last visitation at the D.C. for the women is at 6 o'clock. You have to get there an hour before to get to the mm-hmm. 6 o'clock visit. And nobody is necessarily bringing you there. The jails, even if they're in the city of where you live, if there's not – Adequate transportation, you can't see your children. So you come home, you do all this time, and no one's going to hire you right out. We have been in the box in DC for um, employment, but how do you explain the gap in your resume if you've been MIA for two, three years, or even six months? You know, so you come home and it's very hard. I mean, I've I've been very fortunate because I'm a writer and I'm a public speaker, and um, people are waiting for me. I want. Minus the violence that happened to me when I came home, I want that experience for every woman where there is a community waiting for you that says, "We know you didn't belong there, and we are here to support you." And I think okay. that that's where yeah. that's where I'm okay. sort of with. It. I would right. just let's add that I,
2: think,
0: yeah, I'm sorry. I, go I
2: say I think a, a great. I think Taylor really touches on an important dynamic, and that's around community supervision. So many women, because they are charged with um, nonviolent offenses, are sentenced to community supervision or probation. And when they are released to probation, there are... and fees for, for everything. I mean, from just being on probation itself, so for to be supervised, you have to pay a fee. There can be fees for drug testing or for treatment or programming. Um, and like Taylor said, it's really not designed for women. So it doesn't take into account that women may not um, be able to arrange childcare. And many of these women are single moms, so they have to choose between Showing up for an appointment with their probation officer and you know, taking care of their children. And so they oftentimes, because they aren't able to pay these fees or to balance um, work or childcare, they get violated. Um, their probation officer says that they violated the terms of their supervision, and then they end up right back in jail. And many of the programming is not designed for women, and so it doesn't help to to get those root causes that lead to justice Mm -hmm. involvement. And so we really need to think about how we can support
1: women and offer alternatives that work for them. Okay, so what I've heard you say is that, you know, we, we started out saying that most women end up in prison because of uh, have prior trauma in their lives, major trauma, and then they get re-traumatized in prison. Then there's the disconnect with their family, support, a lack of support systems. I mean, it, it, what, you're, what you're describing is a perfect storm. So what can we do instead of this? Liz, in your report, you talked about some options to custodial arrest.
2: Are you suggesting
1: those options for everyone or are you suggesting them specifically for women? Are you suggesting them for specific offenses? Can you talk about some of these ideas uh, in lieu of custodial arrest, Liz?
2: Sure. So I think, uh, you know, more and more there is conversation across the country um, about how we are using jails um, in communities nationwide um, we are currently using them um, too much. Um, they are overcrowded, and um, communities want to build bigger new jails and you know government stakeholders want to do that, and they go out to their taxpayers and their taxpayers say, no, we want you to think of alternatives and to
1: mm-hmm.
2: rethink the way you 're using the jail and so some communities have developed. Um, to to reduce that reliance on the jail. Um, So there are programs like the LEAD program out of Seattle, King County, um, where law enforcement can take individuals they encounter um, to community-based programming instead of to the jail. And those individuals um, get enrolled in case management. They get help with um, substance use and mental health and housing, um, and as long as they're compliant, they, they avoid um, ever going to the, to the jail at all. So there are programs like that. And then there are jurisdictions that have chosen um, to not focus as much on those low-level um, offenses and to actually not prosecute certain offenses like low-level possession um, other jurisdictions are increasingly using citations, um, so you get a ticket, just as if you were pulled over for speeding. It's the same idea: you get a ticket, you pay a small fine, um, and you're you're not um, swept up into the system. Um, I think generally these programs tend to be designed um, more generally, just for for anyone. They don't focus specifically on women. So an important piece when a jurisdiction is doing some kind of reform like this is to look at your data and make sure that reforms are reaching women to the extent that they're reaching men, because we know, you know, the jail population for women continues to rise, which suggests that some of these reforms are not reaching women to the extent that they reach men.
1: Okay. Why do you think that is?
2: I think, you know, it's, we've, we've touched on it a few times throughout this conversation. It's, fewer women in jail generally, um, so they get overlooked, just like the title of our report. Um, you know, The, fo- the conversation tends to focus on men or to be gender neutral, and, and that means that reforms aren't designed specifically for women and so therefore don't serve them to the extent that they serve
1: men. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, you also mentioned uh, pre-arrest crisis intervention. Um, and you mentioned that that was being done in a place in Ohio and in Tennessee. What does that involve?
2: How, how do you make that happen?
1: If somebody is arrested for an offense, I mean, the police officer can't just look at them and say, well, it looks to me like they're having mental health issues. I'll take them to this particular program. I mean, don't they have to go through a court system before they can be directed to any kind of intervention program? No.
2: The whole idea is that this should be pre-arrest. So um, law enforcement agencies across the country are starting to engage in what's called crisis intervention training or teams. So officers are trained to know um, the signs of crisis and to identify when someone is encountering a mental health crisis. And so they they see these symptoms and they know that um, this person needs treatment or needs some temporary stabilization, and they divert them away from the system into um, treatment. And in many cases, um, law enforcement actually partner with clinicians and go out together when they receive these calls. Um, And there's a program actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that has very um, high rates of success, and only 3% of those calls um, result in, in someone being admitted to jail, so, you know, these alternatives are working. They just need to be brought to scale and to focus um, on women as well as men.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> can you okay. guys hear so me? Yep, yeah, we can hear you. So okay, no, okay. Um, I thinking, that, And
0: I had to call back in, sorry.
1: Oh, okay, all right. Um, yeah, so it, that sounds like it might be promising. But is there any organization or any group that's focusing solely on some of these solutions for women, or are they just like the reports that you mentioned, Liz? They're kind of either gender, gender neutral or focused on men.
2: Yeah, so what we found that, you know, governments haven't done such a great job of focusing on women, there are some excellent organizations um, working on women's issues, for example, um, the National Resource Center on Justice-Involved Women is a great resource um, for both incarcerated people but also um, government actors to learn more about um, programs that work well for women. There's also the Women's Prison Association and the Coalition for Women Prisoners at the Correctional Association of New York. Um, there's some great work being done um, to help women who are justice-involved um, and so so that gives us hope that that government will follow their lead and really focus specifically in on women.
1: Okay. Taylor, uh, very briefly, can you tell us about your Who Speaks For Me project and how women might uh, get in touch with you on that? So
0: they can reach me um, through Taylor at Org. <laughs> Um okay. for for, for um, um and they can email me at Taylor at with the spelling of my name T A Y L A R They can Google it. You Google who mm. speak, if you do hashtag Who Speaks for Me, I'm gonna come up because I use that hashtag all the time. Um and so I'm I'm actually in the process of building this this organization. And so I'll be going into the jails as well as working in the local community, offering a reading, writing workshop called um, Sharing Our Stories, Reclaiming Our Lives, I'm Unpacking the Trauma to Prison Pipeline, and, and I'm working on collecting stories for women. The other thing is that we'll be offering in a year, we'll be offering mini-grants to women who come home to the D.C. area and hopefully, like, translate that program into a national program. Um And as well as I go in and I do training for correctional officers, probation officers, and people who are in the business of advocacy on trauma to prison pipeline. So that's basically what I do. Um, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of public speaking. I've been at the BOP with their chief psychologist, um, and that's that's what I do. I'm like, I went to prison and I came out like doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could, could add I mean, one other good.
2: resource, um, I think the, sure. the Safety and Justice Challenge, which was our partner in releasing this report, um, is an initiative of the John T. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and they are They're supporting funny. a network of 20 jurisdictions that are um, implementing some of the reforms that we've talked about in this conversation. We can always go to their website and see what other jurisdictions are doing um, and see what's working okay. to reduced jail populations. And okay, there's okay, one and
0: that more resource like, source. There's one more resource
1: Okay, well, let me have Liz repeat the resource um, because yeah. I didn't quite, quite get it down. So what was that last resource, Liz? It's
2: called the Safety and Justice Challenge. Okay.
1: Okay. All right. And Great. And okay, so Taylor, so and, and you have um, one more resource?
0: The Equal Rights Center in D.C. Um, okay. is working diligently to deal with the housing discrimination for people with criminal backgrounds, specifically with women. And if you go to the EqualRightsCenter.org, you will find the work they're doing that goes hand-in-hand with HUD's new report on the fact that it is probably a discriminatory practice to say you won't rent to people who have a criminal background because people of color are disproportionately represented in the – the, the jails and prisons around the country, and it's called unlocking, unlocking, just, unlocking discrimination.
1: Okay, terrific. Great. If somebody wants to work in this field, if somebody wants to do some volunteer work or kick in some money, Liz, what should they do?
2: Hmm. Um, well, I think you can out the Vera Institute of Justice where I work. We have lots of resources at our, our website, vera.org. Um, and, you know, I think every community at this point hopefully has um, an organization or community group that it somehow touches on um, issues around incarceration. But if not, there are many national organizations working on this. Um, so it's, it's, you know, a simple Google search can um, yeah. show you areas where you can volunteer or donate or um, support
1: work that's already being done. Yeah. And as always, the best thing that you need to do, if, you, and if there's any issue or a situation that concerns you, is be educated about it. And the report that Liz helped co-author, uh, an amazing uh, study, overlooked women and jails in an era of reform. And if you just Google that, or you can uh, Google it through the VERA, V E R A Institute of Justice, Safety and Justice Challenge. And um, again, the report is called Overlooked Women and Jails in an Era of Reform. And I think that... Culturally, you know, in, in, in America today, we have a number of people who are concerned about uh, issues affecting different populations, and I think that this is a population that perhaps has been, as you said, Liz, overlooked, and uh, perhaps it's time people become aware of this as something that they need to uh, become involved with, something that they need to learn about. And that study, I think, is the the very first place to start. Overlooked uh, women and um, well, let me see, I just closed it up. Um, overlooked uh, women and jails in an era of reform. So the next time you sit down and watch the latest episode or, or of uh, Orange is the New Black, maybe uh, pick up the report and read some real stuff as well as seeing the entertaining stuff.
0: Lynn, thank action. you
1: so much.
2: <laughs> thank you so much for
1: being with us on the show and sharing with us some of the information that you have gleaned in the, the, study, in the study that you guys put together. And Taylor, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for your uh, contribution as well. And good luck with the uh, project Who Speaks for Me. And I think we need to talk off air about that one because, uh, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, my particular passion and interest is domestic violence and gendered violence. And from what I have seen, um, you know, somebody, uh, I'm at a conference, I mentioned that, and somebody mentioned yesterday a, a terminology. And I kind of said, domestic violence is a gateway drug. It's the gateway that opens up so many other bad things that happen to women. So, I call it the trauma to um, yeah. prison
0: pipeline. That's what I call it. The trauma to yep. prison pipeline.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So, oh, thank great. you very much, ladies, for being with us. I always end the show with quote. For Today's us. quote is from From Oscar Wilde: "We who live in prison, and in, those, and in whose lives there is no event but sorrow, have to measure time by throbs of pain and the re- record of bitter moments." Kind of sad, but I think it's pretty accurate. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, i Three Women, Three Way. Join us next week.